Hello and welcome to another episode of 99 Problems But A Boss Ain't One, the podcast that tackles your freelance challenges one episode at a time. I'm one of your co-hosts, Katie Carlisle, and I've been freelance for about seven years and I run a business called Squarespace Queen where I do web design and training. And I'm your other co-host, Michelle Pratt, and I run a training and coaching business called Dive Deeper Development. And in this podcast today, we're going to be talking about freelance myths. So the freelance world has got its fair share of kind of conventional wisdom, but these pearls of so-called wisdom don't always hold true. So I think some of them are out of date and others actually were never true in the first place. So we're going to be exploring some of our favourite freelance myths and hopefully that will help you, our lovely listeners, be released from the spell. So Michelle, let's start with one of your top myths. Yeah, one of the top ones for me, Katie, is this idea that you have to be original. So we hear this talk of USPs quite a lot. And um, I guess that creates a pressure to create something completely, completely new to stand out. And while I I think that's good, um, I don't think it's necessarily true. I I was The reason why I picked this one first, Katie, I was struggling with this a a little bit recently. I was on a course talking about... um, creating headline statements for coaches you know so when you're writing your website as as you know having like a nice headline statement of what kind of coach you are and I just think it's so hard because if you look up coaches on the internet which you totally should for reasons we've already mentioned um you've got oh I help people step into their power I help uh, people live with authenticity I help people fulfill their potential and it's really really hard to come up with a phrasing in, a, in an industry like that which is completely unique and you um you know specific to you but I was doing a course recently and the I was quite surprised to see the trainer on this course say your headline doesn't have to be original it just has to say what you do so if you're a women's business coach uh, that's fine I know there's a hundred of them but you're the only you you're the only version of you so there may be many women's business coaches or there may be many personal trainers or there may be many um I don't know life transformation coach or whatever but not all of them will be like you so don't be afraid to have your headline be what other people have because no one else will do it in the combination that you will so actually descriptive is fine original not necessarily and I thought that was just really freeing to me that you don't have to come up reinvent the wheel I guess Katie which goes back to one of your business names (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that is—I think it is such a common thing that people struggle with. And actually, I think they then go too far the other way sometimes. You know, with that sort of with a website headline, it's a perfect example. You know, I remember when I was first setting up, and I did look at other web designers' websites to see how they describe themselves. And you know, it was kind of we create meaningful digital solutions for. All, it was just we make websites, you know, that's what you're trying to say is we make websites. And actually the the more kind of convoluted you try and make it sometimes, the more that people don't really understand what that actually means. And so I think, like you say, there's something to be said for actually helping people to understand using familiar terms, but then expanding on what makes you different a bit later on on the website. And actually there's so many ways to showcase who you are and set yourself apart beyond just the copy. Obviously the copy is really important on a website and when you're introducing yourself and everything and you know having your kind of elevator pitch, but there's some people when I meet them at networking events or hear them introduce themselves and you can tell it's you know that they've been told by someone you have to have an elevator pitch and it has to and the, the, there are all these rules about it that you know you have to um, say how you 
what problems you solve for people. But then they almost kind of focus so much on that they don't explain what they do in a meaningful way to other people. Yeah. So, yeah, completely agree. And you've experienced that as well, haven't you, Katie? I know when you've we've talked on this podcast about you rebranding before, and actually one of your one of your business names has been you know the wheel exists that whole idea. And I I thought that was really interesting as well. Well, yeah, that's it because it it is this idea that everybody feels like they need to they need to. It's almost like a I don't know if it's a pride thing or. A, like feeling like it's cheating to take an easier route or something. But I think people have this need to kind of feel like they have to figure everything out themselves and make new things for themselves. And so you'll notice, you know, if you've if you've ever worked for a company, you get a, a new CEO or whatever coming in and straight away they're trying to put their stamp on it by trying to in- introduce all these new innovative things. And sometimes that's needed, but sometimes actually if something isn't broke, it doesn't need fixing. Um, and so I found working in like small businesses and charities before I went freelance that like there was so many times where people were like building, you know, hiring developers to build new bits of software custom for them when actually there was tools out there that would allow them to do it for half the price, probably less than half the price and be perfectly adequate for their needs. But it's almost people kind of feel that they need something more custom than they do or feel that they need to make something completely unique to them. Um, I mean, I've turned down work before because I've said, no, this is, this is, you don't, this is too much. You don't need this. Like when we, when my partner and I were doing apps, we'd have a few people say, oh, you know, would be, would you make an app for us? And but you don't need an app. That is completely overkill. (laughs) You need a nice mobile friendly webpage maybe, and then see if it works. And if you've got the money from it, then maybe think about making an app. But it's just, it's crazy. There's almost this kind of need to put your mark on something and to do something differently, but actually you don't have to all the time yeah and if something's tried and tested like coaching people like you say want to know what kind of coach so you could just say what kind of coach you are for example but coaching's pretty sound and people who invested it believe in it and it's the same with web design if you're a web designer you don't have to you could just say you're a web designer and that's absolutely fine and of course the originality probably comes from your personality who you are how you treat people and so you don't need a new necessarily need a new slant, particularly if it's an established skill set, which is in, is in demand as well. So that's key. But it, the, the interesting one, Katie, was there, like when I was doing that course, we talked about, you know, well, where does this, this myth come from? And the trainer on the course suggested that the, the reason why this came from actually was because um, he said that Google back in the day, when people first started advertising things on Google, Google used to work like an index. So you needed to be really specific to be found. So, you know, imagine going into a library. I forgot what they call those numbers on books now. I feel like ISDN or something. I feel I should know this. But it used to be like that. If you wanted to find something in Google, you really had to use the right words. So that's why they were saying that, you know, you had to be really specific to be found. But of course, these days, these uh, programs are much more intelligent. And so um, if you just describe what you do in reasonable terms, chances are your customers will find you yeah and I think I think sometimes as well like you were saying before you the because you're not exactly the same person as the person who originally did do this you're inevitably going to put a different spin on something anyway so I think people try and overthink what being original actually means um you know like for example one one thing that my partner and I have a business that we run together and 
the thing that our main software product that we've ended up focusing on is a way to create a directory um, where people can add their entries as it shows it on a map um, and you can add it to your own website and customize it and all sorts. Now for ages, I sort of shied away from doing this idea, even though I knew there was a demand for it. And I'd had customers ask me for this sort of functionality and it did, I couldn't find anything that worked with Squarespace. And, and I, knew, I knew that it was something that was needed. But Paul Jarvis, who I love, had done a similar software about a year earlier. Um, and I'd already, been, I'd already sort of been thinking about it. So when I saw he did it, I was like, oh, brilliant. It means I don't have to make it. Um, but then his just wasn't quite what my clients wanted or quite what I wanted. Like you couldn't customise it much. You couldn't embed it in the website. But the basic functionality of adding an entry and showing on the map and stuff, that was very similar to what I had in mind. And so for ages, I was like, well, I can't make it because Paul Jarvis has already made it. So I can't make it. But I was like, no, but his version doesn't do what I need it to do. And so in the end, we went ahead and made our own version and it's doing, you know, it's doing quite well. And actually, yeah, like the, it's kind of actually moving away from how his was because we're being informed by customers. And that's the other thing is that if you, you might start in the same place as somebody else, but chances are, as you develop your service or your product or your offering, it's going to branch out because you'll be responding to what your clients or your customers needs are. And you're probably going to have different clients and customers to the other person because of your personality or your location or your pricing or whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely don't think we need to always be original. Yeah. Like my other half always says, you don't have to be the first. You just have to do something better than the next person. So Yeah, definitely. I, I think something aren't quite entrepreneurial about that as well. Um, I'm just thinking if you look at any app store, I remember when the game Squares came out a few maybe is it a year or two two years ago? I was addicted to that game where you're shuffling, sliding along, playing this number game, sliding these squares across. And literally loads of people made versions of the exact same game, very, very simple. And instead of making it three by three, they made it a grid of four by four or five by five, or they made the exact same game they just put cute animals on the tiles. I mean, it's, it's just window dressing. But those people were still getting, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of downloads. It wasn't, it was just an existing idea and they just put their own flourish on it and, and made a killing. And the best bit was they didn't even have to do all the research and development. It, the, the, the data was right there on the Play Store, which was really interesting. If, the, if there's a, a market, a, a big market for something, there's generally room for competition. And there's room for slightly different versions of the same idea. Like if you look at websites, you know, there's website builders, there's, you know, WordPress, Squarespace, Wix, Weebly, various other ones as well. And there's lots of little random ones that you probably wouldn't have heard of as well. But actually, if you're, it may not be an original idea, but you might have a slightly different target audience or something. And so there's quite often room for everybody and so you don't need to be completely original in your product idea or your offering or what but what's not cool is when you copy people yes, and steal from yeah, them. Yeah. Like that isn't cool. And I mean that is something that we worry about for our software product is what if you know, at some point if someone sees that it's doing well, then they could just try and build a clone of it. You know, they could sign up for free, have a look around, try and copy it. But the thing that makes us the thing that makes us worry a bit less is the is the fact that we know we're already ahead in terms of developing and knowing what people want and being ready to respond to that. And it would take them a while to get to that, you know, and we do really good customer support and things like that. So it is a bit scary sometimes if you've got something that is a bit original and you worry that people are gonna copy you, but actually 
that probably means there's enough of a demand and if you've established yourself in the market then you're probably okay yeah for the short term at least and katie you mentioned uh, our, our second myth that we've got down here on our list here you said that your partner said you don't have to be first to market and that's true so just tell us a little bit about that myth because i know i've heard that from you many times before i have quite, i always come up with a lot of ideas like i'm i'm definitely an ideas person and then i'm just like right roll and execute it make it make an app make a web software thing or whatever um, sometimes there's some the ones I can do so then I just do them myself so I'm always coming up with ideas and then if I come up with a really good idea and I see someone's made it I'm always a bit like oh okay well sometimes I'm relieved because I'm like oh god I don't have to make it but sometimes I'm like oh but then yeah he'll always remind me you don't have to be first and if you think about you know Google wasn't the first search engine true it just made you know you don't have to be the first you can in fact if you are the first then you almost have to make all of the mistakes. And so it can actually be more difficult to be first. If you're second or third, then actually you can learn from like, you know, the other people have established a market for you. And so they know that that thing exists. So you don't have to be, he says you don't have to be first, you have to, you know, you either have to be the, you have to be better than somebody else or you have to, you know, you can be the best. But I don't even think you need to be the best because I think, it's best is subjective. You could be the best in terms of pricing. You could be the best in terms of customer service, but different people will want different things from you. So what does best even mean anyway? So we've kind of changed it to, yeah, you have to be like better than the next person or, you know, more, but you have to be better for somebody. Yeah. So that's probably the best way of phrasing it. You don't have to be the first. You just have to be the best for a subset of people. Yeah, I think you've just got to do something of value that, you know, there is a market for what you do and how many customers can yeah. you handle anyway? And as long as, you know, there's enough customers out there, I think that's that's fine. And I think, as you say, Katie, I, I don't like to buy the, the, the first iteration of something. I like other people to buy it first or I like there to be competition in the marketplace. I mean, I think of Apple and the iPad. They were first to market and market leaders and tablets for many, many years. But if you bought into their system, they had you by the short and curlies, which you can argue is, is a fantastic business model. I personally don't like it, but it's very, very popular. Um, but actually when competition came onto the market, prices started coming down and actually other companies did, I think I think it did better. I'm more of a Samsung person myself and I quite like the way that they do things. So you know, like you say, you don't have to be first in fact once that that grows the market i remember Brewdog. Uh, if you've read their business book um business for punks they weren't just trying to sell a product they were trying to grow an entire marketplace and they said that when other brewers came into that marketplace someone asked them well are, well, are you bothered about people copying you or the competition they said said no we as long as these other people are coming in we know there's a market for what we do and a rising tide lifts all ships as we said before so yeah i agree with that completely where do, where do you think that idea comes from this you have to be first to market idea i mean do you think that relates to just products or do you think that applies to because to me that applies less to services i don't know I suppose it's probably easier to innovate with products and come up with a new product than a new service. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I think, I think it's the I think it's the idea of having bragging rights almost to an extent um, to, to say that oh I was the first to do this. We were the first to do this. If you're if you're trying to put yourself out there as an innovative company, then being the first to a certain market is obviously quite prestigious and there are you know there is a you know, there are groups of people consumers who always want to be the first to do something and they've often got a lot of cash and so if you are the first to do something and there's demand for it then you can try and kind of corner that market so 
you know, and get, get, get the customers earlier on, but then you've got to work hard to keep them. So in the short term, I think it's it can be advantageous, but it's whether you can keep that up when there's other competition and everything in. So, yeah, no, it's interesting. Where do you think it comes from, Michelle? I don't know. I do, like you say, I think sometimes people associate a product or a brand or an idea with... Uh, who came first and maybe that those people who came first have lived longer in the memory than those who have also got in on the market mm. but I don't know if that's necessarily true because people talking about um you know the smartphone oh that apple quite often the, the company that um we think of as first quite often just popularized an iteration of a pre-existing idea so people talk about apple and the smartphone and people go hang on what about the palm pilot it's not quite the same thing but there were many features that you know with these early iterations so yeah like it's okay it might be bragging rights um and i think it might be maybe thinking that you can steal a march on the competition but there's quite a few things that products or services i use that sometimes they'll say the original whatever you know the 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 original version of this service or the original providers of x and i'm thinking yeah but i prefer what somebody else does of this actually to be fair so uh, i don't know the if you're if you're in the marketplace and your selling point is well we were the first mm, i'm not sure if that's all you've got to cling to I'd, i'd question what you offer there yeah, and actually, it, it isn't always, it, like I say, it's not always the best thing to be first anyway. Like, I was one of the first Squarespace trainers, um, you know, and, and the pilot programme for the Squarespace authorised trainers, I was one of the first cohort. But the thing is, no one was looking for Squarespace trainers at that time. They weren't a thing. There, wasn't enough, yeah. there weren't enough Squarespace users, and the concept of having someone that would teach you how to use Squarespace just wasn't out there in the public world. Like, you know, I was having to work very hard just to explain what Squarespace was because no one had heard of it. And so I was kind of there, ready to have this service, but it was quite hard to get the take up from it. Whereas now, people actively look for it, and it's much more known as a thing. And so it's much easier for me to sell it. So I suppose in some ways being the first was helpful because it let me kind of get ready and um, me to make sure that my website was optimized for it and everything. But to be honest, now it's the only advantage now is that I've had more experience of doing it. And so that maybe puts me apart from other people, but you could have somebody who's been doing Squarespace for three years instead of seven, and they could be just as good a trainer as me. And the way they teach might be different and stuff. So, and also there's other ways where I've lagged behind. So I've only just started doing an online course after seven years of resisting it. So it's kind of like, I'm really late to that market and it might be, it might seem really stupid because I'm, you know, I was the first to do the training, but then like, surely there's so many online courses, why would I even bother? But I know that there's a demand for the way that I explain things. And so I still think I'm not trying to like corner the market. I'm just trying to make a little bit of money from that and have an option for people who don't have the budget to do the one-to-one training for me. So yeah, I don't think it's that bad, but I think it can be hard if you're the first to convince somebody of the need for something. Like one of my, the people I used to work for, in fact, they, they did a lot of stuff around sustainability and it was really hard for them to do anything but it was because they worked in the event industry which is like notoriously unsustainable um you know the whole premise of it is like people flying around to gather together in these temporary kind of setups and so they had a really hard job kind of trying to sell their service because there wasn't the demand for it whereas now there's a huge demand for sustainability it's something that people really care about but 10 years ago when i first worked for them it was just like is this something to do with being eco? What? Like, it was just, there wasn't that kind of global consciousness about it. And so, yeah, I think 
sometimes it can be hard to be first and be this trailblazer as well. So I don't think you need to be. That's good, because I'm definitely not the first coach or trainer. (laughs) (laughs) I think another one, another myth, is this whole, like, obsession with 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 creating a niche for yourself yeah we've talked about this a lot haven't we i i see the value of it in some ways but like i think people just go a bit overboard with it as well and i think it's really unfair to people who are just starting out to be like you got a niche when i when i did not take my first opportunity to be freelance um after i'd done my translation i did a master's in translation um just out of uni and basically, if you wanted to go freelance, you had to, sorry, if you wanted to be a translator, you had to do it freelance because there weren't that many agency kind of in-house jobs. And so I just kind of bottled it because I was too scared to go freelance. There wasn't any supporting information or anything. You know, we didn't, the inf- internet was in its infancy. There was no awesome podcast telling me how to overcome all my problems. But one of the things that they always said on the course was you have to have a specialism. As a translator, you have to have a specialism. You, you'll never get anywhere if you don't have a specialism. And we were like, literally, like most of the course, we were like, all we've done is go to university, study the languages that we are now translating from and go straight into this master's. What other knowledge do we have? Like, how can we specialize? We don't have any knowledge of any other industry or subject to focus on. Like maybe if you'd studied a lot of literature, then you could focus on literature, but that's not where the work is. Like, so like, you know, now, if I was going into it, I could specialise in stuff to do with websites or I could specialise in sustainability. A lot of people go down the legal route or, you know, kind of specialising in, in kind of product documentation translations or, uh, you know, goes kind of down into the politics stuff and translating like, you know, reports and white papers and stuff. But you have to have an understanding of the vocabulary that's used in that industry to be able to translate it into the right English or into the right mother tongue. And I just thought it was so unfair to expect us to have these specialisms when we were just like, we've barely been in the world. And I think that's the same when you're freelancing is that unless unless you're freelancing in exactly the same industry as you were before you went freelance and you're working with very similar clients and you've already kind of got to that niche, I think when you first start, like you don't know what you're going to do you don't know what your customers are going to want yeah Kate I'm with you when when you first start I did a, a course um you know about going self-employed and I was told well you need to you need a unique selling point and you need to you know know your customer and really get it granular and down to fine detail and it actually put me off putting myself out there actually because these were very big questions I didn't know how to answer them I kind of put off doing anything for a while I mean it, it I think it's great I think um to be clear we're not anti-niching um it can make you a lot of money if you can point to a particular type of customer and say i help these people very specifically do this thing well it's very easy to find your customers and if you have expertise in it then of course you can charge a bit more so i'm not anti-niching but i also don't think it's i don't what we're saying is it's not the the myth i suppose is that you have to have a niche because we meet many people who don't at all and they're very very successful and quite often i meet people with portfolio careers and they've just done a bit of this bit of that bit of the other and they're very happy happy and they're very successful with it too um 
and I was reading Scott Sonnenschein's book Stretch at the moment and he was re he was saying actually the world is moving towards more and more specialists but he said actually there is a place in the world for generalists and he said that ge um, a room full of generalists will generally be better problem solvers and come up with more innovative and creative solutions or products than a specialist and I guess it's the old adage that if uh, the only tool you have is a hammer then every problem looks like a nail but actually if you can, if you can have quite broad pro uh, you know, knowledge base then actually you're not wedded to a particular solution you can offer a range of services and do that well so I think niching is a lack of a niche a niche can be great and a lack of a niche though is not a reason not to get started and it doesn't mean you certainly can't be successful in selling your products and services did you have a niche when you first started no like I said I was told I needed one and I tried um, but really struggled to do well and like you were talking about the translation course I just took on any old work to begin with and people say oh but you might not like it or it might not pay well well no it, it probably does it probably didn't I didn't like some of that early stuff but I didn't know that I didn't like it until I did it and as soon as I started doing stuff without a niche I suddenly start to get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and I, even now I wouldn't say I have a niche as such I have uh, I'm clear on my values I'm clear on my specialisms I'm clear on the people I like to work with but it's not like you know uh, your classic LinkedIn one-liner you know, I help X to do Y by Z. Probably not at that stage yet. Yeah. And I, and, and again, we've got this question, Katie, where does it, where does it come from? Um, and again, I think, I don't know, I wonder if this is a, a Google thing, because when I've looked at putting courses online, you mentioned online courses. I, th I was doing a course about how to sell online courses. And I think if you're going to put a product on an online marketplace, then yes, you probably do need a niche if it, um, it very least for that particular product. So when people go onto Google and type in, I'm looking for X, like your Squarespace trainers, ideally you want those people going, I'm looking for Squarespace trainers in the UK. So you would need to be very niche and say, hi, I'm a Squarespace trainer based in you know Wales or whatever. But um, if you are advertising locally, and I think this is a good distinction, I mean, think about the services I offer, training, coaching, consultancy. People generally don't go on the internet to buy those. Most people buy those services from people they know, like and trust, and they generally do it through networking and word of mouth. So I don't really need a, an internet friendly niche. I'm not finding those people on the internet. I don't, you know, I like people if they want to work with me to, to phone me or speak to me first. And so I think if you're selling a mass product, you know, product to the mass market online, yes, you probably need one. Um, if you're looking to sell through relationships, it might be that you don't need to be quite as narrow as maybe we're led to believe. But I know, Katie, I don't know what you think on that one. Yeah, I think you're right. It depends what you're trying to sell and how you're trying to sell it. So same same thing as what you were saying, like most of my client work where I'm doing like a full website build project, that's pretty much all word of mouth because I think people always want to ask recommendations for something big like that. Whereas like you say, the training stuff is more people searching I don't, there's very few people that come to me from a referral for training, whereas with my client work, it's the opposite way around. It's all all through referrals. And so I think, I think you were saying, where does it come from? I think it comes from the fact that actually creating a niche does work for a lot of people. And what, and then it's that thing where once you've been doing something for a few years in business and you found it's worked for you, you kind of forget where you started from and your stories that you tell about how you got to where you are 
start to sort of deviate a little bit from reality. Not that you're lying, but you've just forgotten that initial thing of what it was like and how hard it was and all the stuff that you struggled with. And so I think when, and then that becomes like a rule in society. If enough people say like, oh, actually when if what actually really turned my business around was having a niche that's then so then people kind of go oh okay I, I have to have a niche and I have to have it straight away and the subtlety is lost and I think that's where a lot of these myths come from is that they're not bad advice per se but they have to be applied in context which is that this is something that works for a lot of people but it doesn't it's not the only way to do it and it might not work for you but it's become this sort of societal thing where like you know, you gotta you gotta hustle and you gotta have a niche and you gotta be original and all these things. And if you tried to do all of them when you first started freelancing, you'd go absolutely insane. So I just think Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's just a case of working out what works for you. And you know, for me, I've niched in one way but not in all in not in all ways. So I started off using different website platforms, now I only do Squarespace. But I've not I've narrowed my market, like my audience. I've not, but I've not gone super niche. You know, some people are like, oh, I do websites for dentists yeah. or something. But they, they, you know, they might do lots of different types of, you know, they might use lots of different platforms or whatever, but then their target audience might be dentists or whatever. Um, chances are actually those people probably just have like a template that they use for dentists and they, you can tell if they've made, if, if your website's been made by that person because they all look the same. Um, Whereas I've, I'm kind of, my audience is quite broad still. So it's freelancers, very small businesses and charities. So that is actually still quite a lot of people. It's not super, super niche. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I know a lot of the, because a lot of the marketing gurus, Katie would say, no, Katie, it can't be small businesses, freelancers and charities. Pick one and really go for that market. Yeah. Actually, that you've been, you've been in business for years and, it, and, and it's really been fine. <laughs> and I like the variety. I wouldn't yes. want to just do charities and just do freelancers. I like the variety of working because it's also that's my history and it's kind of I feel like it's nice because it's a bit of all it's a bit of all of me is now in my business so like I used to be a teacher and I'm doing I'm teaching people how to use Squarespace and doing training I used to work for charities and now I'm helping charities I am a freelancer and I help freelancers I've worked in small businesses and now I'm helping small businesses and so it's all the things that that I've kind of I've known in my life and so it's all kind of finally come together in one beautiful beautiful hole yeah i think i think you're so right again i like the variety as well katie i think you're you're, you're spot on i think you don't niche if, if it bores you either as well but i do i do share that frustration i think you're absolutely spot on there katie a lot of these myths but particularly this one i think it is you know people who didn't have this in the beginning their business turned around when they found their niche and now they retrospectively go back and advise new starters to do the same thing and what frustrates me is that as you say they forget the subtlety they forget where they started and a lot of these people fell into their niche i had someone giving us um, a bit of a presentation on niching in one of my um networks and then when that person described how they found their niche it was it was literally they stumbled across it someone said could you do this and he went yeah right then i'll give it a go and then suddenly he found this whole market that he really enjoyed and we were like that's great and you're giving us tips on how to find our niche but you actually stumbled across yours through experience and basically that's what we're doing and i think it's good to remember that sometimes yeah and i do think that some of the people who think that they found a niche, I don't think they necessarily have. What I think that they've done is found a way to get really clear 
on what they're selling and who they're selling to, but it could still be quite a broad church that they're selling to. Yeah. You know, like I agree that you shouldn't try and say I'm selling everything to everyone because if you try and be everything to everybody, then you're just a bit kind of vanilla and you end up appealing to nobody and you do need something that sets yourself apart, but that doesn't have to be your services or it doesn't have to be your audience. It doesn't have to be everything. It doesn't have to be oh, okay, I only offer this really specific service to this really specific group of people in this really specific way. Yeah. You know, you could maybe choose one thing to start narrowing down a focus if you want to. Yeah. But actually, like you say, if you're a generalist, it might be fine. Um, You know, it could just be people who have this particular problem, but you might not want to niche any further than that. If you can reach the people that you want to target then that's as niche as you kind of need to be. It's, it's, I think the most important thing is kind of finding a way to speak to the people who want to work with you. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell, Katie. And I think just, you know, th- there can be a danger of going too niche as well because think about all the businesses that in COVID, before COVID, were operating in a very specific way. If that specific route to market suddenly is gone, you could find yourself in a very tricky, tricky position. Um, there was that app, wasn't there recently, that, that Hollywood app, um quibi or something yesterday they announced they're closing down and it was an app designed to allow you to stream content in five ten minute episodes and it was made for mobile so of course a mobile con- a mobile specific streaming platform all for those commuters sounds like a great idea and they had 1.5 billion of funding of course the minute we all started working from home nobody's streaming content in short bursts on their mobile anymore they're binge watching on their tv so it you know this this is a danger so what other myths are there, Michelle? Well, another one I came across just actually a couple of weeks ago was this idea that trading time for money is not business. So not real business anyway. So a lot of us who are freelancers, we do exactly that. We don't necessarily have products that we sell or off the shelf products. Quite a lot of us are, are providing consultancy or some kind of service. But it was interesting. I was at a networking event the other week. And I was speaking to this woman who had built up her own agency. They've had it for years. She's got some massive clients, ones that you would have heard of. Um, big names really successful but having a massive business comes with a lot of responsibility and at the moment she's also going through a lot in her private life as well she's got a lot to deal with at home and so she's actually saying well I'm actually seeking to trade my time for money for a few days a month so for her um the consultancy skill she wants to sell is actually something she enjoys it's different from her J job so it's developmental it's kind of fun it gives her a lot of fulfillment and actually it just gives us a day or two a few days off a month where she doesn't have to think about the other stuff she hasn't got any other responsibility she's just can focus on the doing as opposed to all the other stuff and so the question that she asks the group she's like guys is is that bad am, am i going backwards and I think the resounding, you know, kind of response from the group was, is like, mate, no, that, that's not going backwards. If if that's what you enjoy, it's bringing you money and it actually gives you some mental space, the life that you want, then then why why would you not? But she did have this sense, which I totally get. She knows it's not going backwards, but she, she just had that sense. It wasn't, you know, proper business, I suppose. Yeah, I hate that idea. It, I, you're right. I think it's having a bit of a moment right now. I've heard it recently too, the idea that it's just ridiculous and inefficient to trade time for money and again you know we've said about for some of these myths where do they come from i can see where it comes from in the sense that it's it's you only have a finite number of hours that you can spend doing client work and so if you want to make more money then you either have to put your prices up or you need to find more time 
if, you know, in that in that model. And so, I, and you know, obviously there's probably a ceiling on how much you can charge a lot of the time as well. And so I can see why people are, are kind of, who, who are very growth, financial growth oriented, are very focused on, okay, so how can we make it, how can we create something more scalable that doesn't rely on the amount of time that we have in the day? But actually the problem is again, it works for some people, then it filters down, and then this idea gets passed around that, yeah, like you say, it's not real business to do that, or it's it's kind of, it's it's almost seen as a bit like amateurish, or like yeah, like like you said, that person going backwards. Yeah, it's not backwards. It's it's my. Like for a lot of us, we've chosen, you know, we've chosen to go freelance not because we want to make loads of money and run a massive agency or have a suite of products to sell we've gone freelance because we enjoy trading our time for money we enjoy interacting with people like i mentioned the online course that i'm creating like i've stayed you know straight away from that for so long i've been really resistant to it because i was like i don't ever want to get to the point where i go just down the online course route because i always like the interaction where I'm doing client work or I'm doing training. Like, I want that. I don't want to, like like you were saying about this, this other lady, like, I don't want to just be kind of removed from that whole process and just watching the numbers tick up and then managing the products behind the scenes. Like, I didn't go freelance to become a, you know product administrator. I became freelance to, like, work with people. So I think it's that kind of, it's like a system myth to like the one about having passive income, like, oh, you've got to have passive income, which is a, the phrase I hate the most in the freelance, no, second most in the freelance world. The first is anything that has preneur put after yes. it that isn't entre. But yeah, the whole passive income thing is kind of similar to that. It's like, oh, what do you mean you don't have a passive income? And it's like, A, it's not even passive because you have to create it and maintain it and sell it and support it. So it's not even passive. But actually it it might not be what you what you enjoy. Like I think it comes from this idea that that it presupposes, I guess the more it comes from, it presupposes that you're in business to make money, which like I say, maybe it comes from the eighties, maybe it comes from the nineties, it was all about more, earning more, doing more, being more. And I think these days people are much more about particularly with the gig economy, I think it's much more about lifestyle. So you're quite right, Katie, you know, these these some of these rules that we're talking about are great if you want to mass market or if you want to earn more, if you want to scale up. But actually if you just want to earn a good living doing what you enjoy i mean for me part of doing what i do was i like the creation of products i like the consultancy i like the delivery i like to see the impact um you know i like that bit and if i worked for a company there'd be a whole bunch of other guff like meetings and policies and just bs that you would get if i worked for another company i I went freelance for that and i think it wasn't about I'll, I'll get more cash in fact if anything i thought well actually i'll earn less and just work less a little bit yeah, yeah. that's it the, the advantage is you can scale up but you can scale down as well if you're trading time for money you can stop quite easily like if you compare my working day to roland's for example so he works full-time on our joint business um i just sort of pop in and out of it every so often and so that is something where we're not trading time for money. That's something which is more scalable, which in many ways is great. But it means we've got hundreds and hundreds of customers, all of whom need kind of attending to. I mean, some of them are great. They just sign up, they pay, then we never hear from them again and they're happy. But, you know, his day is constantly managing expectations of lots and lots of people. 
And if there's a problem with it, then he has to deal with it. And if they get in touch on the help, he has to contact them. And when there's lots of people requesting new features, he has to deal with them. And actually, it's much harder for him to step away and take a break than it is for me. Because if I want to have two weeks off, I just have to manage the expectations of like, what, five or six clients and any training people. I just book them in after that. I just say, oh, by the way, current people that I'm working with, his situation, put me out of office on. I can just chill out if I want to. Whereas for him, it's much harder because if somebody finds a bug in the software or if somebody has a query about how to use it, yes, we can automate that with training and guides to an extent, but I think people always want to speak to a human. And it's one of the things that works really well for the company as well as the customer support side. And so he it's much harder for him to step away he has to constantly be like checking oh has someone got in touch for the support you know is is everything working etc etc so i think you've got to be prepared if you are going to scale up like that to you know be able to maintain it and service it as well and yes there's stuff you can outsource and everything if you go down the sort of tim ferris for our work week route but again, it, it depends. I think you have to ask yourself why you're doing it. Yeah. You're doing it because you think you should or because you actually want to. Like he loves it. He loves working. You know, he always always wait to be, make a product and he's made one. So he loves it. It's not for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I know people who are really successful at what they do and their businesses are getting bigger and bigger. They really don't want to manage other people. They hate it. And, you know, that, that, that might if that's not what you're going for, that might not be right. So it's another one that I think that is great if you want to, but I wouldn't say it's a necessity, really. And Katie, I think we've probably got time for one more. So, um, give, yeah, give us another myth. I think it's kind of links to this other one. But again, it's the one that is a relatively recent one. Um, and that's the whole, you got to hustle. And I've mentioned it a couple of times this episode too, because it does my nut in. Um, and this idea of, yeah, you've ha- you ha- you got you to gotta hustle. You've got to work all the hours. You've got to be on it. Come on, come on, you know. Um and yeah, if you're not working all the hours and if you're not killing yourself working, then you're basically a failure and like, oh, what? No wonder your business fails. You didn't even try, you know, that kind of thing. And actually, I think a lot of us went freelance to reclaim our work-life balance. And so we don't want to be feeling bad about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you feel about hustling, Michelle? Tell what you, do you hustle? Tell what you mean by hustle. I don't think I've ever done anything that might be described as hustling. I think um, it's true. If you want to uh, run your own business, you've got to work hard. There's no doubt about it. Um, I also think you need to work smart as well. I am a big, I am a big fan of slowing down. And so, I mean, you, you, there's different ways of doing business. You can actually just chuck just a load of energy at it and just go hell for leather and run at 100 miles an hour and you will get successes through sheer volume of efforts and I think that that's fine I do think there is something quite nice about the people you know who, who go a bit slower and a bit more reflective and actually really think about quality rather than quantity and I think there's an opportunity to work smarter sometimes when we slow down we come up with more ingenious and more inventive ways of doing things that get similar results but just a bit faster or a bit easier and for me it was about putting a lot of time into thinking about how I wanted to do things why I wanted to do we talked before about know your why and it isn't just about getting out there and hustle so it depends what you mean work hard absolutely be bold be brave put yourself out there for sure but that doesn't mean going at 100 miles an hour I did actually want to go to a talk by Sir Terry, Terry Leahy who is the guy who um, was in charge of Tesco when they did their launch their club card and they were the, the first to have a big online proper online shopping offering they were the first to market with that too and 
he has his book Ten Rules of Management and in it he's, he describes himself as a procrastinator and I thought that was really interesting he's not your alpha CEO at all he's one of the most successful retail CEOs we've ever had and he says he likes to procrastinate and what he what he calls procrastination I don't think is procrastination it's just reflection so he doesn't strike me as one of those leaders that goes from the front and so cracks the whip and says right I want everybody on this off you go he spends a lot of his time gathering information reflecting digesting really thinking about purpose and then he follows the data he follows his reflections and and does the right stuff well so yeah I don't know what we mean by hustle but yeah I don't I don't and also we talked in another episode didn't we Katie about um the struggle about the struggle didn't we the pity party beware the pity party yeah and so if you want to know more about this yeah we can listen to that episode of the pity party because we took you know we said in that that um, flogging yourself into the ground. People who are successful have quite often worked incredibly hard and run themselves into the ground, but it doesn't mean if you run yourself into the ground that you're going to be successful. That's not kind of the point, really. And also, I think what, one of the other episodes we talked about is the comparison trap. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, really relevant for this one as well, because I think we see people who are kind of show you know they're they're on social media they're talking about how they're like just working all the time and they're just constantly like trying to grow their business and they're they're always you know they're always going and doing something and then there's that kind of thing like oh yeah and so if you want your business to be as successful as mine you have to do these things too and I'll sell you a course on how to do these things you know but actually do you want that you know that's the thing the, the comparison trap it's so easy to kind of think oh look that person's successful and I could be successful and I'm not as successful like you say with the pity party as well it's like actually I don't want to be have to put myself on social media 24 7 I don't want to have to have that bigger following that I actually can't do my work because I've got too many people commenting and dming me like I don't want to be accountable I want to be able to go off the grid for a bit if I want to like I want to be able to slow down and take time off and so it's about what success means to you and like yeah you know if you're young and you don't have a family and you, you know you kind of really enjoy what you're doing it's not to say that yeah working loads of hours is bad but I think it's that idea that the only way you'll make it as a freelancer is if you just cane it that is a myth because I think like you say you could you know I know freelancers who are parents and they they work a few half days a week and that's enough for them and it allows them to spend time with the family it gets them a bit of income it allows them to start growing their business and then maybe when the kids go to school they might want to scale it up a little bit but I think it's just about doing what works for you rather than anything else I don't know what do you think yeah I, I definitely I think we, we have met we have met people who uh, I've coached people as well who have gone at 100 miles an hour booked right up with clients fall over back you know fall, bend over backwards for their clients and then they sort of sit down at the end of it and go do you know what part of it's fear of not earning part of it's feeling like I ought to I feel guilty you know that I can work any hours I want and I'm not giving, working all the hours and then they kind of step back and say actually no, hang on this wasn't what I signed up for this is the opposite of what I, I got into this for so normally um, it's about taking a step back and just working out like you say knowing your why where does it come from katie you mentioned the comparison trap i don't know online does it come from online america was my suggestion america i think <laughs> it comes from america i think you gotta hustle like it's, it's i think it's from america maybe it's from that really popular um, disco track do the hustle that can be our new jingle <laughs> i love it um yeah that was a very it's a very persuasive song 
<laughs> so so at the end of each episode we do the hustle and then we talk about what our main takeaways are from the episode so michelle if there was just one tip or idea that you could take away from this episode or one piece of advice that you'd give to people what would it be do you know what, Kate? I think it's probably about what we've discussed before. Just be careful about the advice you receive. A lot of it is recycled. A lot of these things that people advise, all these freelancer myths, come from things that people have learnt the hard way and then they pass it on with good intention. But to be honest, the only way you might find what's right for you is through trial and error too. So don't don't be held to ransom by the myths. They, they may not apply to you. What about you, Katie? Mm, I was going to say that. So <laughs> I agree. It's don't feel bad if you're figuring it out as you go along and if you feel like you're not being a proper freelancer because the way to be a proper freelancer is to try and figure it out but do i think do find people who who are living their living a version of success that appeals to you yeah and maybe look at what they do and try and kind of follow follow their lead a bit more rather than just letting everybody shout down at you um and and say this is what you have to do like we did an episode called the advice avalanche and i think i probably said something very similar yeah. in that episode but if you're gonna follow advice from somebody and you're gonna kind of learn you know what the right thing to do is then make at least make it somebody who's in a place that you aspire to be not just someone who's successful by some generic society definition yeah. but not actually in a way that's meaningful to so you. kate you remind me in nlp uh, we ha- we do something called modeling and this is talked about a lot online modeling success and uh, the trainer who taught me that said um if you want somebody's success you have to be prepared to do what they do if you're not prepared to do what they do then you're not going to get the same results so like you say pick pick your role models carefully well that's all we've got time for on this episode but if you want to listen we've got a back catalogue of over 60 episodes and if you want to get in touch with us we're at 99 problems cast on twitter that's the number 99 problems and then cast as in podcast and of course if you want to be alerted when new episodes are available please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you next time for another episode of 99 problems but a boss ain't one